Hey friends, welcome to this week's episode. You're gonna love it, it's a great one. But you know what, before we get there, I wanna tell you about chemistry staffing. You know, you might be at the place where you're thinking about a transition. You might be thinking about what is your next ministry step. And frankly, if you were to reach out to me, I would say, you know what you should do? You should talk to my friends over at Chemistry Staffing. They want to help you find a fantastic long-term fit. That is what I love about them. They're trying to help leaders like you sit in a place, be in a place that's great for you long-term. But what I want you to do, you might not be there now. What I want you to do though, is I want you to go over to chemistrystaffing.com forward slash unseminary, where you can download one PDF that contains two eBooks, when to leave and before you go. Even if you're thinking about these issues, it's probably good to spend some time processing that, thinking about it. And these two resources will help you do it. These two books are probably the best resource for ministry leaders out there. They're completely free, who are wrestling through whether it's time for them to move on. Now would be a good time for you to check these things out. Again, I'm so convinced that our friends at Chemistry Staffing will help you find a good long-term fit. You can trust them. They're good brokers. They're, they're good friends along this journey. So drop by chemistrystaffing.com forward slash unseminary and pick up the two eBooks all in one when to leave and before you go both resources to help you wrestle through friends ministry transitions are a part of ministry life and so if you're thinking about those today one of the first things i would say to you is hey you should reach out to my friends over at chemistry staffing i know they'll help you find uh, a great long-term fit again that's chemistrystaffing.com forward slash unseminary today are you looking for practical ministry help to inform and inspire your leadership Do you have a sinking feeling that your ministry training didn't prepare you for the real world? Hey, you're not alone. Join thousands of other leaders in pursuit of stuff you wish they taught in seminary. Welcome to the Unseminary Podcast, presented by CDF Capital, helping churches grow. Visit them at cdf.capital forward slash unseminary. Hey friends, welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. So glad that you've decided to tune in. I'm really excited for today's conversation. We've got Mark DeMoz with us. He uh, is an incredible leader from Central Arkansas. In in 2001, him and his wife uh, founded Mosaic Church, which is a thriving multi-ethnic church in an economically diverse community, doing all kinds of great things. Today, he serves not only as a directional leader of Mosaic, uh, but is also a champion of a movement of churches really that are trying to be uh, multi-ethnic, make a difference all across literally the world, the Mosaic Global Network. So super honored to have Mark with us. Mark, welcome to the show. So glad you're here today. Yeah, Rich. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't we start with kind of fill out the picture? What did I miss there uh, about your background? You know, kind of give people a sense of Mosaic. Tell us a little bit more of the story. Yeah, I'd be glad to. I served as a student ministries pastor in predominantly white evangelical churches for 18 years, coming right out of college at 22 years of age. And uh, the final eight years of those 18 brought me to the city of Little Rock to a wonderful church. At the time in 1993, that church was 2,000 people. Eight years Mm -hmm. later, it was 5,000. My youth group of 7th through 12th graders went from 150 to 600. I was Mm -hmm. in the top 2% of paid youth pastors in America. I'm living the dream. (laughs) amazing church. I had 500 kids, uh, you know, in small groups, 250 volunteers, nine full-time staff, built a three and a half million dollar student center again. So I'm living the dream, right? And one day in the late nineties, I looked around this otherwise amazing church and realized the only people of color were janitors. That was Mm. 1997. And that began Mm. to bother me. I didn't know at the time why that bothered me, but it began Mm. to bother me. And that took me on uh, into a journey into the new Testament 
uh, doing my own exegesis, so to speak, throwing out what I'd been taught in seminary. I had a master's in exegetical theology at the time. Now my doctorate, my demon in exegetical theology. And so I began to wonder about the things I'd been taught in the New Testament about the nature of the church. Was it in fact segregated Jews? That is Jewish believers went to Jewish churches, Gentile believers to Gentile churches. Uh, was the homogeneous unit principle as we had learned it, um, the way to plant, grow, and develop a church uh, quickly is to focus on a single people group? Was that beyond pragmatic? Was it in fact biblical? And so I did my own homework, so mm. to speak. By the late 90s, I, I, I realized that every church in the New Testament was a multi-ethnic church, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, as we mm -hmm. say at Mosaic today, walking, working, worshiping God together as one. And so once that mm -hmm. biblical vision and mandate got in my belly, I determined, of course, uh, with a calling from the Lord to stay mm -hmm. in Little Rock, to leave that church, to go to the urban center of Little Rock uh, in the summer of 2001 with what Christianity Today would call three years later a big dream in Little Rock. Could, in fact, men and women of diverse ethnic and economic background walk, work, yeah. worship God together as one? Could they will themselves to do that? in order to advance a credible witness of God's love for all people, not just some here in the mm -hmm. city of Little Rock, uh, the neighborhood we went to 30% poverty, 66% uh, of kids without uh, dads in the home, highest violent crime in the city determined to lean into Matthew 516. You know, I believe this is a Matthew 516 century in the 20th century. You can mm -hmm. get away with using words to reach people for Christ today. It's all about works. He said, not mm -hmm. let them hear your good words, but let them see your good works. And this is mm. what will shine a light on who God is and how much he loves. Hope for all, not just some. So in 2001, after 18 years in the multi, uh, I'm sorry, in the uh, homogenous, uh, evangelical, uh, mm -hmm. predominantly white churches, I came to the inner city, started Mosaic, uh, a church for all people, not just some people, multi-ethnic, economically diverse. And within mm -hmm. several years, my uh, friend, my good friend, Dr. George Yancey, African-American sociologist today at Baylor University, uh, mm -hmm. we had connected we met and we in, you know, uh, realized that if God was showing me and, and him from a sociological standpoint, that churches ought to be multi-ethnic for the sake of the gospel, surely he must be showing others around mm. this country and the world. And so we pulled together about 30 people in November of 2004 to consider this in Dallas, Texas. That led to the establishment of Mosaic's global network. And the mm. mission and vision of Mosaic's for now almost 20 years is to uh, help pastors and ministry organizations build healthy, multi-ethnic and economically diverse, socially just, culturally intelligent and financially sustainable churches. So I serve as the directional leader of my own church now over 20 years old uh, at Mosaic, but I also serve as the co-founder and the CEO of Mosaic's Global Network. Mm -hmm. Love it. One of the things you talked about there, I found super intriguing, which I know is a part of what you've been wrestling with. You talked about how in the 20th century, churches grew based on the word on, you know, on, you know, speaking ideas. And then in the 21st century, you know, churches are growing based on works, action, getting people out of their seats into the street, making a difference actually in their community. Are there any other uh, of those kind of dynamics that you've seen as we kind of you know, pivot from one century to another. You know, I was just thinking, gosh, we're we're a quarter of our way into uh, the 21st century, and we're still some of us are still living on models from the 1960s. Uh, what would be some of those other changes that we need to be thinking about as church leaders? Yeah, you know, Rich, that's a great question. I've addressed that for some time, and this past mm -hmm. year, put that in writing in one of the chapters in a book called Red Skies, published by 100M, the missional community. It's a compilation book of Alan Hirsch, myself, Deb Hirsch, many others. But in mm -hmm. my chapter on economics, I 
talk about that very thing. And the way I frame that is most pastors in America today, in spite of good intentions, all their activity, et cetera, they are merely managing decline. They are merely mm. managing the decline of their churches. And if you, and of course, all the statistics show us that uh, attendance down, giving down, mm-hmm. et cetera, we have people's interest in the church, the pipeline for professional ministry leaders, the lack of strong student ministry today, providing young people that are fired up to, to be Christ-centered folks, as well as going to ministry. All those statistics, if you will, show us we're just managing decline. And if you mm-hmm. understand that, then I asked myself several years ago, if mm-hmm. that's true, if you accept that premise, why is that? And the way I framed it in the book, the way I speak about it, is that we are still chasing 20th century metrics. Mm-hmm. So the scoreboard, the dashboard is still all lit up by 20th century metrics, right? Mm-hmm. But as you rightly mentioned, we're nearly 25 years into the 21st century and mm-hmm. the metrics are still 20th century. So what that's are crazy. those metrics? If we're going to, in fact, disrupt and reinvent for the 21st century, you know, the men of Issachar understood their times and knew what was right in that moment for mm-hmm. Israel to do. We have to be thoughtful about our times to know what is the best course forward. And it is certainly not a return to the 20th century metrics. So all mm-hmm. that's to say, yes, the 20th century, the way people came to Christ is you shared, uh, you brought Billy Graham to your city. He clearly explained the gospel. You shared the four spiritual laws, clear explanation of the gospel. You gave mm-hmm. people Josh McDowell, uh, evidence that demands a verdict, <laughs> more than a carpenter, later Lee Strobel, the case for Christ, right? And all yep. of this was explanatory. So in a simple way, you can say the 20th century wasn't, uh, 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 the, the difference is explanation versus today demonstration. Again, Matthew mm. 5, 6, we're going to have to lead with the kindness, meeting felt needs, empathizing, entering into people's stories, uh, and meeting those needs first at the bridge of humanity before we'll ever get people mm. to consider or cross the bridge of Christ's divinity. Uh, Mm -hmm. Another one is size versus influence. In the 20th century, you played for size. Um, In Mm -hmm. uh, 21st century, you better be playing for influence. And influence is not tied to size as it was in the 20th century. Uh, Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, I was a part of a thriving church of Mm 5,000 white Republican suburban (laughs) class professional people. And in a city like Riverwalk, when I was there, I thought, boy, we have a lot of influence in the city. But when mm-hmm. I left that to start Mosaic, I realized the Democrats hated that church. People of color mm-hmm. didn't even know that church existed. On and on I could go. And so I realized that, yes, it's a lot of bodies, but they're only getting out on a Sunday and infiltrating, if you will, one or mm-hmm. two slices of a 15 or 20 slice demographic pie. So mm-hmm. the point is, the greater your diversity, both structurally in terms of uh, the, the structures of your church uh, and the demographics of your church, the greater your influence is going to be in a community because I can have 300 people of, mm-hmm. uh, of 30 different nations and economic diversity and all different types of backgrounds culturally. And when they get out on a Sunday morning, both Republican, Democrat, et cetera, a black, white, rich, poor. And when they get out, they go into a larger swath of the city with the messaging mm-hmm. of Christ and the messaging of the church. And you could mm-hmm. argue which church has more influence in a city. I'd rather play mm-hmm. with 100 healthy, diverse people the way I'm describing mm-hmm. the 1,000, all white, all black, all Asian, and I'll prove to you my influence is 10 times my size. So size mm-hmm. versus influence, the greater your mm-hmm. diversity, the greater your influence uh, in mm-hmm. the city. Uh, of course, 20th century homogenous, uh, homogeneity, 21st multi-ethnicity, right? 20th mm-hmm. sustaining innovation, 21st disruptive innovation. So all of those uh, are just a quick highlight of some of the uh, the things we discuss, and one of the big ones I know you want to talk about today yeah, is in the totally. 20th century, tithes and offerings 
Yes. In the 21st, multiple streams of income. Ties okay, so yeah. In the 20th yeah. century, are no longer enough to not only sustain your ministry, but to advance it in a healthy way. Okay, so this is, to me, this one, so there's, first of all, friends, you need to be following Mark. If you're not already, there's so much that you're unpacking there that I'm, I'm like, amen, amen, amen. I remember, like I, so ironically, I spent a lot of time thinking about church growth, and I think I only had one, it was like one, literally one class in one course in school that was on church growth, and it was all on the homogeneous unit model, which, which now looking back on it, I'm like, I'm, that's like sin at its core, uh, which is crazy. You know, all these years later, like I'm like, and it was just taught as like, this is just the assumptive way. But now, man, if you pursue that model, you are, uh, yeah, your church is just not going to impact at all. So love that. Um, but I would love to dig in on this financial piece. You, I heard you say this and I'm like, I think Mark's gone off the deep end. He's being crazy. Obviously, tongue in cheek. Don't think that. Tithes and offerings. Isn't that the core of how we're supposed to fund our church? Convince me otherwise. Yeah, again, uh, 20th versus 21st century understanding um, uh, at the core. And let me just quickly pivot and say the homogeneous unit principle is biblical insofar it's applied for evangelism, discipleship, and leadership development. But once you sure. cross the line to plant, grow, or develop a local church, there's no biblical license, freedom, or mandate to target a single people group to plant a church. The church is to be for all people wherever possible, and certainly in the United States, it's very mm. possible across a wide swath of this country. Having mm -hmm. said that, back to sustainable economics, when uh, in the 20th century, again, tithes and offerings, 21st multiple streams of income. What am mm -hmm. I really talking about? Good stewardship. Mm -hmm. In the American church, so let me just start with a biblical framework. Uh, the mm -hmm. reason why you need to not, and when I say move away from tithes and offerings, I don't mean get rid of tithes and offerings and not, not, not uh, encouraging generosity. Of course, we're going to keep doing mm -hmm. all that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that too is biblical. However, we've got to do some other things because that in and of itself in the 21st will not be enough like the 20th, right? So from a biblical standpoint, and I have written a book, uh, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, as well as a book mm -hmm. called Disruption. It's into all of mm -hmm. this. But very quickly, think about it from a biblical perspective and a sociological perspective. And I'll just throw in a couple on each. So in the American church, and again, 20th century metrics, the way most pastors understand the term stewardship is three mm -hmm. ways. One, to manage what God has given us. You know, God has given us this building, these assets. There's a hole in the wall. There's a pothole in the street. We need to fix it. We need to maintain and manage the resources God has given us. Uh, it means recording accurately the, the, the gifts, the tithes, the offerings that you receive. We've got to record that accurately. And number mm -hmm. three, we've got to clearly communicate to our donors how we're spending that money. Mm -hmm. And those are the three ways in which stewardship is defined in the American church. Now, I believe all of those things are part of good stewardship. However, mm -hmm. if we're very uh, technical or exegetically sound, that's not how Jesus defines stewardship. Jesus mm -hmm. said, and he taught us in the parable, right? You gave me five, here's your five, and I made you five. You gave me two, here's your two, and I made you two. Well done, good and faithful steward. Mm. One guy, as I like to say, sat on his asset, right? One guy <laughs> sat on his asset. I love it. Love and, it. And, and he sat on his asset and he's called the wicked, lazy slave or, or servant, uh, steward, if you want. And the, what, what does that mean? He says, I was afraid. I, mm. I didn't want to lose it. So he, he led mm. with fear, not by informed faith as the other two. Mm. And what does Christ say? Take away the one asset from the guy. And give it to the people that know what to do with it. And that yes. is happening yeah, yeah, yeah. all over this country uh, in terms of Jesus overturned the money change. Well, what about that? You know, we're not supposed to touch money. Has nothing to do with fair or benevolent profit. It was all mm -hmm. about unjust economics. 
they were upcharging people for the exchange rate of a Roman coin to a Jewish half shekel. Mm. They were marking up the turtle dove, so to speak, for the survey uh, mm. or for the sacrifice beyond what the poor could otherwise afford. It was right. all about unjust economics. So biblically, we need to think deeper about these matters. Mm. And then from a sociological standpoint, easy to make the case, right? Ties and offerings mm -hmm. completely and consistently dropping. But more than that, from a secular standpoint, uh, you've got generational shifts and attitudes and approaches to giving. Nearly 80% of all giving to the American church as of several years ago is given by people born before 1964. Mm -hmm. And doesn't wow. that younger people don't have money. They just, they don't trust institutions. They believe mm -hmm. that their volunteerism and or their endorsement of the church or the products, the service of the church is equated with their giving, where if you're older, like me at 61 years old, you see those mm. as a both and, not an either or. So there's mm. generational shifts and attitudes and approaches to giving. Uh, the rise mm. of dual income households, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's gone from where in 1960, about 20% of US households had dual incomes just to live a middle-class life. Today, it's almost 80%. Mm. And it's right, not that right. people have all this extra money, it takes at least two income streams if not more, in the American household just to live a generally middle-class life today right. due to uh, wealth inequality, income gaps, uh, the inflation, the highest it's been. Uh, mm. You know, middle-class wealth is the lowest it's been since 1940. So there's all mm. these factors sociologically, but the mindset of the church continues to be as if the single paycheck of a tithe and <laughs> offering will help the church, if you will, live a middle-class life. So yes. remember, 80% or so of households in the 60s yeah, uh, the, the the old Ozzy and Harriet thing, right? Theoretically, yep. dad went to work, mom stayed home with the kids, got involved with the PTA. That one paycheck from dad's work allowed that family to have a house, have a car, etc. Those days are long gone and right. they're never coming back. So we're going mm -hmm. to have to. So the practice of church economics is is to leverage the assets of your church in pursuit mm -hmm. of good stewardship. What are those assets? People, money and facilities. Not mm -hmm. just the people you have, but the connections to others they have. Not just mm -hmm. the money you may or may not have, but your ability to aggregate money quickly. Uh, your mm -hmm. facilities, uh, most facilities, even pre-pandemic, sit empty from Monday to Saturday. That's mm -hmm. buried assets. Money in mm -hmm. your bank account, that's buried assets. People, uh, so the point is we've got to turn on the spigot, if you will, to mm -hmm. release the economic engine and assets of the church Again, not to go out and make tons of money like as if, as if it was capitalism and run amok or we're in it for a profit. But no, if we keep giving everything away, we're not going to be here in five years. It's the church mm. that owns him. And I walk in and I say, well, how much do you charge these groups coming in? Oh, no, we just let them do it. We just let them come in for free. It's our ministry. Mm. Well, who's the toilet paper, the water bill, the electric bill, et cetera. Yep. You see what I'm saying? That's not good mm -hmm. stewardship. I know the heart is right. But mm -hmm. that is not good head stewardship. Right. And you don't have to, and I tell, I'm using that as an example, you don't mm -hmm. just charge the cost of it, but you don't charge top dollar somewhere in between. So you're covering yes. your cost. You're right. making a little something, but not an exorbitant fee to be benevolent. And the point is when I have the, the when I'm generating income from a, a profitable standpoint, when I've got the ties and offerings and the other uh, leg of this, by the way, Rich, we talk about three legs mm -hmm. of a store like offense, defense, special teams, the tithes and <laughs> offerings, starting a, for, a, a nonprofit sister organization to your church, whereby you can chase local state federal grant funding, go beyond what mm -hmm. your church can otherwise do. And of course, as I just leaned into in this example of a gym, the for-profit side where we're leveraging assets to generate 
uh, ROI and the aggregate of ties and offerings, your grants and donations, uh, both from local, state, federal, as well as outside entities, other churches. Yeah, foundations, stuff. Yeah, yeah. With the ROI pursuit of for-profit entity, that aggregate is how you're not only going to survive, uh, but sustain, become stable, and thrive going forward in the 21st century. Yeah, I love that. So good. Now, I'm wondering, so you you started to get into a couple practical pieces there. I like that three-legged stool piece. I think we have clarity on, you know, that kind of the, the normal church leg of this, you know, the stool. Talk us through a little bit of that, um, particularly that that the profit side that you gave us the example of the gym. Um, give us some other examples of the kinds of things that either you're doing or you've seen other churches do that like, oh, that's an innovative way to, to try to generate some income um, as a church. Yeah. So just let me be clear. The gym example is, yes, that's an example, but I use that to help us free our minds and think with a different mentality. So mm-hmm. again, the mentality is we're giving this away, we're doing ministry, uh, but you're not going to be here in five years if you don't change that mindset. So that's what that example is about. Um, again, three-legged stool. We're talking about the third leg, your special teams, if you will, your for-profit ROI side where you're leveraging assets, generating income. Uh, on mm-hmm. that side, uh, let's just break it down and think think about it like this. By the way, let me say the simplest way for a church to generate income is to rent its facilities. That is the simplest right. way, right. the cleanest way, rent your facilities. If you're going to rent facilities, as many churches do, I'm not the first person to suggest rent your facilities right. or right. what have you, but, the, but what has happened heretofore is people see it as nice, not necessary. Okay, isn't it oh, nice that's good. That we have this preschool? Isn't it nice that we rent our parking lot uh, for this and we pick up a little income? Th- that's a nice mentality. Today, it's mm-hmm. necessary. So in other words, it's part mm-hmm. of a comprehensive strategy that heretofore mm-hmm. has not been developed that I put forth in disruption, coming revolution in church economics. So with mm-hmm. that in mind, again, the simplest way to make money is to rent your facilities. And the way to do that is to get a commercial realtor to come mm-hmm. into a certain area of your church uh, empty classrooms that can be converted, converted to nonprofit centers, counseling mm-hmm. offices, law, law offices, all kinds of things. They're sitting there dormant. Get a commercial realtor to come into your church and say, on the commercial market, this mm-hmm. area would be worth this amount of money. So I'll right. just use an example. These five classrooms, this 3,000 square feet would be worth $5,000 on the commercial market. Okay. Right. We're not in it for top dollar. Again, we've got a strategy. Uh, the the ties and offerings, grants and donations, and now the for profit. So we don't have to make top dollar, but I can't give it away for free, as we said. So I might rent that space for two thousand or three thousand dollars, which which has an impact on the people I'm renting it to. In other words, it's lowering their overhead so they can right. offer their goods and services at lower prices to the community. We call mm-hmm. that uh, benevolent ownership. Uh, mm-hmm. I I I as a church, we make something small business, we take pressure off of them in terms of their overhead and they pass on that savings to the community. Uh, So Mm. everybody wins in that scenario. So the simplest way is to leverage your facilities. Uh, Here's another uh, example of that. We Mm -hmm. talk about monetizing existing services. So uh, put that, Mm. uh, you know, under the the renter space, benevolent ownership. This other aspect would be monetize existing services. There's already things churches are doing and paying to do in terms of the space they built, the people they employ, the equipment they have. They're already doing that. Well, monetize that. That's like low hanging Mm. fruit. Here's a perfect Mm. example. Uh, Mm -hmm. Many churches, most have some type of a coffee shop or coffee area, right? And they're giving free coffee away every Sunday morning. When Mm. you think about that, who's paying for that free coffee? Ties and offerings in most cases. 
right? So somebody decides we're going to take $2,000 a month out of tithes and offerings. That's $24,000 a year. We're going to let that walk out our front door in the form of free mm-hmm. coffee and with the, the with hospitality, hoping somehow not only are blessing people, but hopefully that some of these people will like our church someday so much that they come and they start giving. Okay. Mm. But what does $24,000 a year take away from actual ministry? Mm. I, I might be able to hire a part-time a youth pastor or a part-time, I might be able to fund the entire VBS uh, and right. go to whole different levels with 24,000, right? Mm-hmm. So I've got this space. I want to give away free coffee. But you partner here with business people who know how to monetize that space in a benevolent way. So we did this at our church prior to the pandemic. We, we had built out our coffee area. I went to, to Sam's Club. I buy a microwave. I buy a little tinfoil. I buy Jimmy Dean sausage biscuits with cheese for 95 <laughs> cents a biscuit. Yes. You wrap them up and heat them up. You sell them for $2 on Sunday. McDonald's mm-hmm. sells them across the street for three fifty. So I'm already a dollar fifty under what you get. Right. Basically, the same thing across the street. The mm-hmm. people start buying the biscuits, and let's just say that the the mark is two thousand a month. All I have to do is sell two thousand biscuits a month to make two thousand dollars to cover the free coffee and recoup two thousand right. dollars a month in my tithes and offerings to put to direct ministry. We don't think like that. Nobody taught us to right. think like that in no, seminary. No, that's so true. Again, business people know how to do this. So your job as a pastor, you don't have to be the one to do this. You have to understand the strategy. Again, as yep. I lay out in my books, Disruption, Coming Revolution, Church Economics, and then empower people to, to put this thing together. So that's an example of monetizing existing so uh, services, right? So benevolent ownership of your facility, monetizing existing services, and the last thing is you can actually, most pastors, again, don't know this, um, the, you can start for-profit LLCs under your nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and in other words, real, for, real business. So for instance, you might go out and, and get two capital partners. And so we want to, you know, we're always printing these t-shirts. We're going to create a t-shirt printing company right here. And we're going to move it into the church. We'll provide the space. We'll buy the equipment, et cetera, et cetera. That'll be our investment. You get these two other investors. They put money in. And all of a sudden, you're hiring your high school kids, your college kids. You're providing jobs. You're doing this marketing. And you're never paying for T-shirts again. And anything you're giving or selling to your church, you're making profit. How much money do you pay for janitor service in in your church? What if you repurpose those funds to actually start a janitor company that employees, mm. et cetera, get a couple of capital <laughs> investors. Now you've got a Love business. It. Everybody gets third of profit. The janitor company is doing so, you know, goes out, gets contracts. And the net that that company makes beyond the employee costs and all the things, salaries, the net pays for your janitor coverage every mm-hmm. year. So that company's mm-hmm. cleaning your church. But the way you're they're being paid is through the net profit of the work right. they do outside the church. And again, you recover significant dollars to repurpose the ministry. So, so good. benevolent ownership, monetizing existing services, and starting new businesses, whether under the nonprofit, formally as NLC or not. And that leads to a question, Rich. I know you're probably already anticipated. I'll just roll into it. Yes. Um, what about my tax-exempt status? And sure. most pastors are afraid if we get into these things, we're going to lose our tax-exempt status. And that is not true if you play by the rules. And there's really mm-hmm. just two simple rules to play mm-hmm. by. Number one, um, that when you, let's take a coffee shop, for example, if, mm-hmm. if I am making money uh, as a church, if our church is making money uh, through mm-hmm. that coffee shop through the year, of course you report that on your taxes as unrelated business income. 
But let's mm -hmm. say that's generating a, a, a profit and we, we made $10,000 this year, 20,000, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That money, the $20,000 net profit that we receive as a church needs to go back into the budget of the general church. I can't say, right. hey, $20,000, awesome. Hey, our five board members, everybody gets a $4,000 <laughs> bonus, right? Yes. You can yeah, yeah, do yeah. that, all right? That no. violates a law. You'd lose your tax income status. The other yep. thing is you have to pay taxes on that property and or that business, just like any other business or coffee shop would in your city, state, or in the mm -hmm. country. You cannot leverage your nonprofit mm -hmm. status to try to avoid paying property taxes or what have you. So in our case, for instance, we uh, after 15 years, we were able to purchase an abandoned 100,000 square foot Kmart. Uh, mm -hmm. And for the past eight or nine years, we've rented 44,000 square foot to a suburban fitness club that moved into the inner city uh, and took that deal. Now, mm -hmm. they, that off what we make off them is right now, uh, I can't do the math quickly in my head, but probably I'm going to say 40% or 35% of our mortgage is paid just mm -hmm. by that one contract. That's great. Wow. Okay. That's Not only that, but 6,000 people from the community belong because our price to them is so low, they can lower the prices to people for this quality help, uh, you know, physical fitness and all that. And, and so all the people in the community join at $10 a month, no contract. Love and it. that has an impact on the health and well-being, the emotional psyche of a community that today is 24% out or below poverty. Love it. So all of that so good. In, in the books. And again, we could talk all day about it, but as fast as I can talk and get <laughs> That's Dude, yeah, you, you, yeah, yeah, you anticipated the question there. I was wondering a bit about uh, if if you could give an overview, a little bit about how the legal structure works. But you think you gave some clarity there. Is there anything else on that for for the pessimists in the room that are like, listen, we just can't do this. This is too risky. You, you answered it well there. But is there any other kind of because uh, I know it's actually pretty straightforward. There's a number of churches that are doing this, but uh, you know, is there anything else we need to think about that on the structure side? How those three entities kind of interact with each other. Yeah, well, again, you you mentioned fear. If you're not doing this because you're afraid, you're no different than the guy in the Bible burying the asset. You as a pastor may not understand this. You may not understand. You gotta we walk by faith, not by sight. Now there's a fine line between faith and foolishness. And what yes. that means is, Pastor, I'm looking you in the eye, so to speak, right now. You don't have to do all this. You yes. just have to understand it from a theological, sociological, yep. pragmatic standpoint. And then go out and empower the people who share your heart, share your vision, yep. share your theology, and let them take these things and run with it for yep. uh, the glory Love of it. God. And now the, the last thing I'd say, say, what else to add? So picture, if you will, those of you who are listening, picture mm -hmm. a football team and draw it in your head as a three-legged stool. There's offense on one leg, defense on mm -hmm. one leg, special mm -hmm. teams on the other. Each mm -hmm. team has its own players, its own metrics, its own coaches, mm -hmm. its own game plan. Uh, and to win the game, you've got to have all three teams functioning at a very high level and minimizing mm -hmm. mistake, or you don't win. Most mm -hmm. churches only play, have an offense, if you will. Let's call that the spiritual game. That's mm -hmm. that's most churches. Some <laughs> have the social game and very few the financial game like we're talking about. So yeah. what we've got to do in the 21st century is a move away from a single dimensional game to playing mm -hmm. a three dimensional game. And, and of course, the spiritual is already happening and in terms of, uh, and all we need to do, the adjustment there is to make sure our churches are moving and leaning in towards the increasing diversity of our society, Revelation mm -hmm. 7 9 on earth to become the embassies in which diverse ambassadors walk and reach mm -hmm. the world for the gospel. So there's innovation there, but on the economic side, that's tithes and offerings. The third mm -hmm. leg we've already talked about, right? So that's mm -hmm. going to generate for-profit ROI, whether that's mm -hmm. done 
formally under as an LLC or just as unrelated business income to your nonprofit. But the second leg, let me just throw this in there uh, mm-hmm. uh, to answer your question. The second leg, I just kind of threw out what you want to mm-hmm. do is create a nonprofit, not many nonprofits, one nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that good. That's good. It's going to have multiple programs uh, mm-hmm. within it because most uh, people might approach uh, like, I don't know, let's say they have a heart for foster care. So they start mm-hmm. a nonprofit for foster care or maybe it's ESL class and immigration. We start an ESL or I'm sorry, a nonprofit for that. But when you do that, you end up with eight nonprofits, eight boards, eight tax returns, mm, eight copiers. Oh, gosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's Super inefficient. inefficient. So yeah, yeah. what you want yeah, to do is create one nonprofit. By the way, you don't want it across town. You want it under your roof so that you're sharing expenses uh, across right. the board. There's ways the church uh, uh, aggregates that. And this nonprofit, mm-hmm. think about it as two sisters in the same house or the defense to the offense. And mm-hmm. it's led by social justice types, compassionate, kind, mm-hmm. merciful people that go to school for an MSW, for instance. So, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the first leg is your pastors. The second leg is your MSW types. Your third yes. leg is your business people. Love it. And that's Powerful. the effort, right? Now, that would be incredible. The, right. So the executive director types of your nonprofit, they build out the multiple programs that are meeting and servicing the needs of the community. And mm-hmm. again, on the economic side, where do you get money? You get money by uh, chasing local, state, and federal grants, which are available mm-hmm. for these works in ways that they wouldn't be available if those works were organized under your church. So sure. practically what you do is you start with any compassion, mercy, and justice work going on in your church, form the nonprofit, and shift mm-hmm. those things out from under the oversight of the church, under the oversight of the nonprofit board before you add, and then you right. look for uh, money outside. And, and what happens, it's not just local, state, and federal grants, that's grants, but donations means there's there's Christians in your community, individuals that go to other churches that don't mm-hmm. have a food distribution program, but they mm-hmm. have a passion for food insecurity. And they will donate money, not to Mosaic Church, but to the nonprofit Vine and Village. They'll, churches will send their money and their people to serve mm-hmm. in those programs. You know, churches typically don't write a check to other churches, right? But they'll mm-hmm. write you a check. They'll write your nonprofit a check mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. We're, and they'll send people to work. Mm-hmm. I'll give you one mm-hmm. example. We have in our city a private Christian school called Episcopal, started by mm-hmm. the Episcopal Diocese, very wealthy school, mm-hmm. whatever. And they send every week about six to 10 of their students in the entire mm-hmm. high school, ninth through 12th grade. They send wow. six to 10 kids to work in our food distribution, uh, distribution program on Tuesdays between mm-hmm. 10.30 and 1.30, and they've already gone through the entire high school once, now they're doing it again. And this mm-hmm. is partnership for us, right? But they wouldn't mm-hmm. do that if it was Mosaic Church, right? Mm-hmm. But they do it because it's a nonprofit. And I'll just end with this. Mm-hmm. Right now, I invite your listeners to pray, but um, for 15 months, we have chased a $3.5 million grant from the state of mm-hmm. Arkansas. Love it. And nonprofit was awarded that grant and it's down to one vote of a congressional committee in the state of Arkansas that has wow. to vote. And but we've already passed nine out of the 10 tests and we're wow. just final 10 tests. But that would be three and a half million dollars to our nonprofit. Yeah. And I That's and amazing. when I met with the state comptroller 15 months mm-hmm. ago and I sat down to discuss this this work, the first question he asked me was now is this a church that's what he said now is this a church mm, and i said no it's a it's a 501c3 community development corporation it's a separate nonprofit and he mm. said it's hard to give away money 
And mm. what he meant mm. was, if you wow. were a church, you might as well walk out now because you're not getting a penny. But right. because right. you're structured as a nonprofit, and essentially we have a letter, we've been awarded three and a half million pending. That's amazing. The vote, uh, the, the final one, vote. Of one next step. That's amazing. That's amazing. This has been incredible, Mark. I really appreciate you leaning in on this and, you know, so clear uh, and so passionate. I appreciate you coming back and pushing us. I'm hoping listeners, as you're listening in today, uh, you're thinking, hey, man, we should take a step on this. And I think a, a real practical next step is I would love people to go and pick up a copy of her book. It's just simply called The Coming Revolution in Church, Church Economics. Why? What we've been talking about. Why ties and offerings are no longer enough and what you can do about it. People can pick that up at Amazon. Is there anywhere else we want to send them to pick up copies of this? Personally, what I think this would be a great thing to do. Friends, you're looking for you know your next staff training thing. Buy copies of this book. Buy 10 copies of this book for your entire staff. Read it together. Uh, and then talk about, hey, what sh what changes should we make? How does this affect the way we're doing what we're doing? But where else do we want to send people if they want to pick up copies of this book? Well, you know, I mean, I'm a pretty simple guy. You already mentioned Amazon, anywhere where books are sold, Barnes and Nobles, wherever. I I'm sure, sure Baker, my publisher, would love for you to go to their website and buy it. But <laughs> sure, to, sure. to your greater point, yes, this is what yes. people are doing. They're buying a copy for every one of their elders, every one of their staff, and they're yep. walking through it and reading it through. Because frankly, in that book, I also talk about the entirety of the three-legged stool. Um, right. But but more than that, it's it beyond the economics of it all. It's really about freeing your mind. In fact, there's yes, an entire chapter it. called "Free Your Mind." And and even if you your thing wasn't economics, it will drive you to think differently and ultimately about the 21st century. Yeah, love it. Appreciate you, Mark. Thank you so much for your leadership. Thanks for your encouragement today. Where do we want to send people online if we want them to track with you or with the church or with Mosaics Global? Or where do we want to send them? Yeah, the best way, uh, and, and that's what we do, and I appreciate you bringing it up, mosaics.info, M-O-S-A-I-X.info. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. We are literally helping uh, churches, uh, organizations. My next call in 15 minutes is, was a very large mm -hmm. uh, global organization. But mm -hmm. again, Mosaics uh, has products and services people to help you build healthy, multi-ethnic, socially mm -hmm. just, culturally intelligent, financially sustainable churches. That's what we do day in and day out. And, you, it. and it's kind of like you just pick one. Hey, we want to work on our economics or we want to work on our cultural mm -hmm. intelligence mm -hmm. or we're looking mm -hmm. to hire diverse staff. So we have different departments, if you will that will help you mm -hmm. with any one of these angles or aspects you're looking to move your church forward into the 21st century and move away from 20th century metrics again to be so healthy good. not only survive and be sustainable ultimately sustainable uh for the sake of the gospel going forward in this century so good appreciate you sir thank you so much thanks for being on the show and all encouragement to you look forward to hearing about that uh, donation coming in from uh you know the gift that's so good yeah you will pray with us thanks so much for having me rich take care brother Thanks for tuning in to the Unseminary Podcast. Drop by unseminary.com for more helpful resources for you and your team. There you will find articles, online courses, and so much more. Unseminary, stuff you wish they taught in seminary. Presented by CDF Capital. Visit them at cdf.capital forward slash unseminary.